Welcome to episode 17 of the Wimp Podcast. It's been uh, it's been about a week. Um, you know, it's been a, a rough couple of weeks. Um, those who, uh, of you who have listened, you know that we've been through a lot where I'm at here in East Lansing over the last few weeks. Um, and, um, you know, it takes some time to get over that. And then we got hit with an ice storm last week, which prevented me from getting out in my usual night to record the podcast. So, um, so here we are, we're back again. And when I left off, I think I said something along the lines of, I was going to put on my history hat a little bit. Um, and, uh, that's going to be the case for, for this episode. Um, you know, I want to start off by saying, um, you know, a lot of what I do is informed by what I do as uh, a teacher uh, in higher education, um, as a historian. Um, you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard uh, a number of different subjects, right? I, I would, you know, I would, I would say the last, you know, three, four episodes have been a lot more personal in nature. Um, I've kind of dipped into that, you know, self-examination of this particular white man of privilege. Um, although I did have my friend Juan on talking about toxic masculinity and man, he, he killed that episode. That was good stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, I do, uh, plan on getting back to bringing on some guests. Um, I just, uh, made a, a connection this afternoon with, with somebody that I'm excited to bring on in the next couple of weeks. Um, really inspirational guy. I'll save the reveal for later. Um, but, um, yeah, so we're going to get back to that. Um, but you know, in the past episodes I, I've dipped into a, a lot of things, you know, many of which dip into my, um, uh, how many times can I say the word dip in a sentence? Um, I've gotten into the, you know, my profession, my history, my colleagues, you know, um, whether it be Julian Chambliss, uh, Dr. Ernesto Morales, uh, and others, Kate, uh, let's not forget Kate Birdsall, uh, and her just epic episode with me on creativity. Um, but, um, so today I, I don't have a guest, uh, but I, I'm, I'm going to get back into kind of doing what I do is, which is, uh, some cultural critique, some historical uh, critique, and, um, you know, trying to bring a historical perspective to our modern uh, context and what's going on now. Um, and so this isn't going to be a, a perfectly flowing episode. So I've got a couple of different balls I'm juggling today. Um, but it, we're going to be dipping into, um, there it is again. I need some dipping dots just to put the, put the crown on this, whatever it is, what I'm looking for. I don't know. Um, so we're going to talk about a little bit about, we're definitely talking about race today. Um, race is, is, uh, kind of at this, at the core of, of what I think about as a historian, you know, my expertise is 20th century urban American history and race is, uh, obviously central to that. I'm also a cultural studies professor, um, at Lansing community college, um, and race, uh, you know, American cultural studies in particular and race it plays a huge part of that. And there's, 
you know, a week when we, we dip into that in, to a significant degree. And, you know, I've taught African-American history as well. Uh, and you might remember a couple of my students from that class, um, Kiwi and Ryan on last season. Um, but so, you know, that I kind of always dip back into that. God, no more using the word dip. Uh, yeah, let's just, let's just kill that right now. You know what we need? We need a break. So we're going to, we're going to take a break. I'm going to exercise that word from my vocabulary. And when I come back, we're going to talk a little bit about race. We're going to talk a little bit about um, how history repeats itself. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Christian nationalism, in a particular white Christian nationalism. Um, so stay tuned. I'll be back in just a minute. All right, so there's been a lot um, recently in the news, particularly in the realm of politics, um, about race, about, uh, you know, in particular, um, critical race theory, um, wokeism, right? Um, there's legislation that's, that, and, and Governor Ron DeSantos in Florida that's really trying to kind of put a muzzle on teaching about race and using critical race theory as this kind of insidious boogeyman um, with which liberals are making white kids feel bad about themselves. Um, but there is a, you know, and there's, in the current uh, Republican Party um, as it's constructed in the, in the post-MAGA, you know, uh, current MAGA even, um, what, how did that, there was uh, Lauren Bobert, whatever her name is from Colorado. Um, I think she re, re, recoined it. I think I saw on Twitter today, something like ultra magna, ultra mega. It's like they're transformers now or something like that. Ultra mega. Uh, anyway, um, Matt Getz, uh, represented from Florida. Shocking. Um, given the Ronda Santos anti-woke agenda. Um is one of these players, these MAGA guys um, that kind of rode in on Trump's coattails. Uh, and he, you know, gets into this bit where he's like going after one of uh, the United States uh, military's generals, a guy named Mark Miley, uh, about uh, teaching critical race theory um, in the military. Uh, so I am going to try and uh, play this clip Let's see if this comes through or not.
All right. So, um, <laughs> so that was a white guy uh, in the military, a very powerful white guy, um, talking to another white guy about why critical race theory is is important and something that he would um, consider reading. Um, you know, and I think that that's that's just one kind of thing here, right? So it's really easy in political circles and, and, and rhetoric, and especially in today's like three second soundbite Twitter universe where we're constantly just bombarded by, you know, bumper stickers essentially um, to like create this boogeyman, like I said before, out of this critical race theory and, 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 and try and cook it up as some, you know, giant agenda or something like that. But um, you know, this is clearly, it's, it, it, this is not something that's taught in K through 12. It's not something that's taught really to undergraduates. It was a graduate school level um, way of thinking about race and how we understand race theory uh, in, in our culture. And, um, but, you know, it's this, it's this big thing now. And then we turn it into, again, you just, let's find the rhetoric. You know, I talk to my students all the time that the words matter. When we, when we read our primary sources and we're going over a particular document from history, you know, I say to them, listen to the rhetoric, listen to the words and how they're using the words, right? It's, they are intentionally using words like uncivilized, savage, you know, and whatnot when they're talking about Native Americans, for example, in the past, because they're using that language to kind of create this distinction of elevation between the white race and then the, the Native Americans, right? Um, that's an intentional act that's using the words to kind of shape. So when we, we use this word woke, right? Woke means waking up, right? And then there was a while where uh, in the in the more recent past where the term woke was used primarily probably by white liberals to kind of say, hey, like I'm awake, I'm aware of the issues that are facing my black and brown brothers and sisters. I'm aware of the issues that are facing uh, our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters, uh, and non-gender conforming, uh, friends. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm woke to that idea. Right. And then that word gets snatched, co-opted by a very kind of a militant MAGA wing of the Republican party, which is kind of got the biggest megaphone right now. Right. And so they're just kind of everywhere. Um, and you know, I got to feel bad for Republicans who identify as a Republican because of, say, something like, okay, so you you grew up with the moral majority, 1980s version of Republicanism. Um, because of your religious beliefs or whatnot, you're pro-life. Um, or you are, you know, you've come to some understanding of, of a conservative economics uh, and you, you know, you're looking at your party here. I'm thinking of guys like John Kasich, uh, from Ohio, uh, some of these more like, you know, classically conservative type guys who, I mean, for myself, if you listen to the podcast, obviously that's not somebody that I would necessarily even agree with, uh, from a political standpoint, but I, I look at him and I say, okay, this is a reasoned individual who has policy ideas that are different from mine. I think this, this current brand is, is just unhinged, but so what they're trying to do is is create this, this storm of this kind of boogeyman agenda. The, the biggest, you know, we just got done talking about, um, in my class this week, we were talking about the, uh, the great depression. Uh, 
uh, and we were looking at Herbert Hoover's uh, speech right before the election uh, in which he lost to FDR. And he's, he's, you know, talking about the New Deal policies that FDR was running on um, and basically just instilling this, using this rhetoric of fear, right? There's over and over and over again, if you look through political rhetoric, whenever you see fear, language that would bring up a, a specter of danger, of, of subverting something that you've grown accustomed to, turning the world upside down, you know, revolution as opposed to reform, even reform in some cases, right? Um, but fear is an incredibly powerful motivator. And, you know, it's it's pretty fair to say that this whole woke agenda, anti-woke agenda, CRT thing is about trying to stoke fears in people who have grown accustomed to a way of life as white people of privilege, that there are certain benefits in the ways that they live their lives. And when you say, hey, we're going to kind of, there's something that's coming that's going to threaten the everyday normalcy, quote unquote, normalcy that you've grown accustomed to. Um, it's a powerful motivator, right? Um, Donald Trump was fantastic using that fear language to motivate people. Um, and he's obviously not the first, he's not the only. And then and again, uh, that's not to say that it's just Republicans. I'm just talking in this historical moment right now, these particular Republicans, this is what's going on. Um, but so there's that going on, right? Um, and when you hear that, you know, th th this this is tied to a larger thing. So another one of uh, Matt Getz's, uh, you know, uh, ultra MAGA compatriots, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think that's right. Uh, I just can't. She's she's like, um, you know, the sound of uh, fingernails on chalk at full volume times a thousand for me. So I I, I try not to to pay much attention to that. But you know, she also. Um, is one of those. And she identifies as a Christian nationalist, right? And she's pulling that from, there's, if you're on Twitter at all, and I'm very rarely on Twitter because as I mentioned at the end of last season, uh, I tried to move into the Mastodon space, which is a lot more sane, a lot more under control, a lot less unhinged. Um, but for research purposes and, and things like that, every once in a while I'll, I'll dip in. Um, and this, this, Christian nationalism is a big thing in Twitter right now. Um, and there's a guy in particular whose name is Stephen Wolf, who wrote a book called The Case for Christian Nationalism. And so he's kind of everywhere right now. Um, and other people that I've mentioned in the podcast in the past, you know, um, where's the royalty checks, Kristen uh, Kobes Demay, <laughs> um, you know, have, have kind of taken this, this guy to task. So has uh, Jamar Tisby, um, another person um, that, that I respect and that I've uh, uh, mentioned on the podcast, or maybe that was with, uh, with Ben and my other podcast, Mystery Flight, which needs to be revived here at some point. But anyway, um, so they've kind of like looked at this and they're looking at questions about whether or not this is uh, new and it's, it's not, or, or, you know, anyway. Um, so, one of the things that's really striking to me um, is so we'll 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 pull back on race for a minute, and we'll go into Christian nationalism, and we'll leave it at that because that's what um, that's how Wolf 
defines it. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and, and try and give us a little bit of a, of a sound clip again. Uh, this is seriously lo-fi. Um, I don't have the, the means to, to do this better, but um, here's a little clip where Wolf is kind of like outlining just the basics of what uh, Christian nationalism means to him uh, in an interview with a guy named Doug Wilson whose significance we'll get to in just a second. So take a listen. Okay, so I'm going to stop there before uh, Wilson gets gets back into this a little bit more. So on the face of it, that sounds pretty innocuous um, to certain audience, right? So I grew up as an evangelical Christian, and uh, I'm betting that the vast majority of people that I grew up with and people that I still hang out with today uh, would hear that and be like, well, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, I would like to see our country living along the lines of, of my beliefs, of Christian beliefs, which, you know, if you're a Christian, you you look at the life of Jesus and, and how he led it and, and what he's asking us to be and become. And, and there's just a whole lot of good in that. Now, the problem with that is that when Christianity gets married to nation, uh, it gets subverted and perverted. Um, and that's, that's really where um, the rubber meets the road here. Um, if we, if we, you know, go way, way back and we remember specifically you know, Jesus himself, when any kind of like, how does this work with, with regards to what you're saying and, and the state is, is always very much a nope, not so much, right? So they're talking about taxes. He says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's and under God what is God's. Don't want anything to do with that. Um, you know, uh, encouraged to, you know, is this where we're going to bring the kingdom, this violent kind of uh, you know, here comes the nation of Israel and here's our king and we're going to kind of overthrow this politically. And Jesus is like, this isn't really a political thing. And I'm going to go so far as to show this by allowing the political rulers of the age, along with the religious leaders of the age, his own religion, right? And that should be instructive to us to essentially kill me over what I'm trying to do here. Because what I'm doing is subverting the Christian or I'm sorry, the Jewish at the time, uh, religious setup. I'm subverting that. I'm going counter to these leaders, otherwise they wouldn't have me killed. I'm subverting the Roman state, right? Otherwise they wouldn't have me killed, right? So it's a very not interested in in blending the message of what I believe, or of who I am as the son of God with a political um mission in any way, shape, or form, right? That is just not on the agenda. Um, the United States, 
you know, as we begin our history as, as colonists, there are some who, like Jonathan Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts, one of the uh, pilgrims to come over on the Mayflower. For him, he sees what their experiment is in this new colony as setting up a city on a shining hill. And what he means by that is we're going to order our society in such a way that it's going to bear such great fruit because we're basing our lives on our spiritual beliefs that the rest of the world is going to see this as a light and then they'll want to exemplify that, right? They'll want to, so you lead by example, others follow. Just like Jesus walked around, led by example, others follow. There wasn't this coercion now. And in, in fact, the the local government that Winthrop oversaw, they were there was a very much a, a, a kind of religious expectation into how they ordered themselves. But it's important to note that when the United States as a nation is founded and our founding documents come together, there's mention of God, but there's also a separation of church and state, which is implied in the uh, in uh, the Bill of Rights and then goes on and and Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, makes it very specifically clear in arguments that the church and the state should be distinct institutions. Um, and so that's a very important thing. We hear in rhetoric today that our nation was founded as a Christian nation. That's not the case. There are a lot of Christians. There were a lot of white Christians. There are a lot of white Christians that lived a life uh, that endorsed slavery, uh, that endorsed uh, patriarchy, um, that endorsed all kinds of things that weren't necessarily good. Um while also being Christian. And did I, did I mention the native native population earlier, right? Uh, the Christian record for the treatment of Native Americans is atrocious. Um, and then particularly when the United States military gets involved with, with the treatment of, of Native Americans, it's, it's no better, right? So the merging of Christian and national, historically speaking, in those contexts, not a good thing, right? So let's, let's start with that. So what Wolf is saying is that we're, we're speaking specifically of a nation that is that is organized by um, and and run by essentially Christian values, Christian principles. And again, on the face of it, it sounds innocuous. If you are a white Christian in America. Okay, so um, getting back to, to Christian nationalism and, and what it is today. So um, there was a roundtable um, featuring uh, Christian Kobes de May, Jamar Tisby, um, and um, let's see, Robert Jones, um, where they kind of talked about that based on, and they were talking about a, uh, a study that was done by the Brookings Institute. Um, a survey. Um, and so, um, you know, the three of them had this, this thing, you can, you can look it up on YouTube. It's a, a Christian nationalism, Christian Kobes de May, you know, or white Christian nationalism, you can kind of, or any one of those names, Shamar Tisby, uh, Robert Jones, but so from, and so all three of them also wrote articles about it on Substack, um, which is, or using Substack, which is kind of a, a new way that people get stuff out. Um, so I might consider doing my own Substack at some point, right? Um, so 
this comes from um, Kristen Kobes uh, Dume's uh, Substack article. First, social scientists make clear that there is a spectrum of commitment when it comes to Christian nationalism. As this PRRI Brookings survey shows, not all Americans are Christian nationalists. 29% qualify as adherents or sympathizers. And not all Republicans are Christian nationalists. Here the number is higher, though, at 54%. Although white evangelicals are far more likely than other Americans to support Christian nationalism, 64% are either adherents or sympathizers, 33% remain skeptics or rejectors. There's also variation in the levels of support from strong adherents to sympathizers. And within these categories, there exists a spectrum of allegiance to these principles. Survey data also reveal the contours of Christian nationalism today, the price, uh, the precise shape of Christian nationalist commitments take uh, among those who might qualify as Christian nationalists. Uh, the survey uh, reveals many uh, correlates when it comes to views on race and racism, immigration, anti-Semitism, patriarchy, and political violence and authoritarianism. Uh, so you kind of see where this is going. This is still, you know, let's be perfectly clear. Christian nationalism is still a minority uh, phenomenon at this point, but it's a it's a it's a minority within a very significant and important group uh, in our country that has a very significant megaphone at their disposal right now. And that's uh, these um, evangelicals, uh, white evangelicals. Uh, who have these kind of connections in the political circles, uh, most prominently among, you know, the um, MAGA or formerly Trump or currently Trump, as it were, Republicans. Um, bouncing over to uh, Jamar Tisby's um, article when talking about, so there is some crossover here, um, you know, between Christian nationalism acceptances among uh, other races as well. Um so, for example, there are minimal differences in adherence to Christian nationalism beliefs by race. In one section of the report, it says rates of support for Christian nationalism are roughly the same among white Americans, 20% sympathizers, 10% adherents, and black Americans, 21% and 10, respectively. Um, so at first, Tisby goes on to say, it would seem that Christian nationalism cannot be white because nearly identical percentages of people across races hold Christian nationalist beliefs. Here are two observations that help explain the multiracial composition of Christian nationalism despite its white supremacist features. There is always a small segment of the oppressed who cooperate with the oppressor. This is how you get the Uncle Tom or Coon trope. We have long known that members of oppressed groups may betray their own people to gain benefits from the dominant group. Black Americans as a group are highly religious. This is the second point. According to a Pew Research study, while 90% of adults believe in God or a higher power, the proportion is even higher among Black Americans. It is 97%. The majority of Black people in the U.S. follow the Christian religion. Therefore, one would expect Black Christians to agree with some statements regarding the importance of Christianity to American civic life. So uh, it's also important to note that these black Americans who hold the Christian faith, right? This was a faith that they learned from slaveholders, right? This was not their initial religion. This was a religion that they learned under the yoke of slavery. And that's an important qualifier. They made that faith their own, and it became a very 
liberationist type of faith. That's why we have liberation theology in the black tradition. It's much more identified with um, imagery that's that harkens back to like the Exodus and uh, the Israelites coming up out of slavery. Um, but I'm digressing here a little bit. So with regard to that first point, though, about how members of oppressed groups may betray their own people to gain benefits from the dominant group, I want to point to um, uh, the introduction to um, Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist. Um, and he wrote an award-winning uh, award book called Stamp from the Beginning. He's an African-American historian. Um, but in his introduction for how to be anti-racist, he opens with a story about how, uh, even though as a, as a relatively poor student uh, at his high school, uh, by traditional standards, testing standards, and things like that, GPA, um, he managed to get accepted to two um, historically black colleges. Um, and in this, he also is um, becomes uh, uh, one of three uh, students chosen in this oratory contest. Um, but as he's talking about this, he, he gives this speech and he talks about this speech that he gives as a high school student, which basically paints, um, African-Americans. He uses the same tropes, uh, that African-Americans are in this space because of the way that they behave or because of who they are. Right. And so he says, racist ideas make people of color think less of themselves, which makes them more vulnerable to racist ideas. Racist ideas make white people think more of themselves, which further attracts them to racist ideas. And so African-Americans, you know, in this case, he's in this oratorial con contest, uh, this, you know, debate contest, essentially. Um, and he's using language that debases African-Americans to get the approval of this white audience, essentially, right? And as he's doing this and he's getting these applause uh, responses uh, for this speech that he's giving, this really kind of like uh, excited emotional speech. He says, I didn't realize that to say something is wrong about a racial group is to say something is inferior about that racial group. I did not realize that to say something inferior about a racial group is to say a racist idea. And so he he talks about how these this racist idea basically is about manipulating us to seeing the people as the problem instead of the policies that ensnare them. And so um, that that kind of loosely ties together. I'm, I might be stretching it a little bit here, though. But with this notion that um, there is within this larger evangelical culture, black and white, a kind of a, uh, an understanding, as Tisby calls it, where the members of the oppressed group betray their own people to gain benefits from the dominant group, right? So that's the, the, the benefits that come from being a part of the dominant white evangelical political establishment in the United States. The problem with Christian nationalism um, is that it is also uh, tends to be militant. Um, we saw that uh, on January 6th, the number of Christians, uh, self-professing Christians who were a part of this, you know, stop the steal movement or whatever it was on January 6th, where they were going to Congress to essentially overthrow the swearing in of Joe Biden as president um, in a very obviously violent uh, attempt at shaping the nation as they see it should be 
Right. Um, the study that uh, the Brookings Institute released, you know, uh, Robert P. Jones states that adherents of Christian nationalism are nearly seven times as likely as rejectors to agree that, quote, true patriots might have to resort to violence to save our country, unquote. This is 40% versus 16%. That's significant. Among supporters of such political violence, 12% said that they have personally threatened to use or actually used a gun, knife, or other weapon on someone in the last few years. Among all Christian nationalism adherents, 7% say that they have threatened to use or actually used a weapon on someone compared to just 2% of Christian nationalism rejectors. Further, Christian nationalism supporters display significantly more fondness for authoritarianism. While only about 3 in 10 Americans, 28%, agree that because things have gotten so far off track in this country, we need a leader who is willing to break some rules if that's what it takes to get the thing right. Half of Christian nationalism adherents and nearly 4 in 10 of sympathizers, 38%, support the idea of an authoritarian leader, which is very much what we saw in Trump, right? So you can see how these things tie together. So I want to get... back to how we see this as, as, you know, white Christian nationalists, right? So there's, I talked about rhetoric earlier and listening for the words, uh, the, the, the keywords that kind of tip you off to, to what, what's going on here, what's under the surface, right? And so I want to go back to that interview with um, Stephen Wolf and Doug Wilson, uh, in which uh, Wolf starts talking about uh, you know, his concerns about mass immigration. So let's talk about what he just talked about there, right? He said, specifically in the last hundred years, this question of who we are has become problematic. Well, what's happened in the last hundred years? And it's it's really, you know, you, you want to go beyond that. So this was an interview uh, that was pus, uh, published four months ago. So 2022, if you go hundred years ago, that's 1922. Uh, 1922 was the um, rise of the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan. That's an important historical note, and we'll get back to that shortly. Uh, But before that, right, so we have the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, Reconstruction, which really kind of falls flat, then the institution of the Black Codes, Jim Crow laws, Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, right? And then suddenly you have African-Americans, you have women, you have Native Americans, you have other minority groups, basically, let's read this as not white men, right? Women got the vote in 1920, which kind of hits right on that 100 years, right? So we're trying to sort ourselves out. Who are we? Are we a patriarchy led by white uh, Christian men? 
or quote unquote Christian men, or are we over the last hundred years, a nation that's trying to integrate black and brown people into our society and figure out what that means and figure out how these citizens of the United States get access to the equal opportunity and freedom that this country was supposedly founded on. Right? So there's some coding that's going on here. We don't want to bring in more immigrants. And when he's talking about immigrants, right? He's not talking about Europeans. He's not talking about, you know, people coming from Ireland, Norway, Germany. He's talking specifically about people coming from places like South America. He's talking about people coming from, you know, refugees from other places, war-torn places, Afghanistan, for example. So there's there's a, a, a coded racism in what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is we, we, we have to sort out who we are. So I want to back up historically and pulling up my sheet here. Um, this was language that we've heard before, right? We've heard this kind of talk about understanding who we are. So let's say this. This is from 1926. This is within that last hundred years, right? Racial integrity is a very definite thing to a Klansman. It means even more than good citizenship. For a man may be in all ways a good citizen and yet a poor American, unless he has racial understanding of Americanism and instructive loyalty to it. It is in no way a reflection or uh, any man to say that he is un-American. It is merely a statement that he is not one of us. It is often not even wise to try and make an American of the best of aliens. What he is may be spoiled without his becoming American. The races and stocks of men are as distinct as breeds of animals, and every boy knows that if one tries to train a bulldog to herd sheep, he has in the end neither a good bulldog nor a good collie. That is from The Klan's Fight for Americanism in 1926. I'm going to read from the very first paragraph of that. There are three great racial instincts, vital elements to both the historic and the present attempts to build an America which shall fulfill the aspirations and justify the heroism of the men who made the nation. These are the instincts of loyalty to the white race, to the traditions of America, to the spirit of Protestantism, which has been an essential part of Americanism ever since the days of Roanoke and Plymouth Rock. They are condensed into the Klan slogan, Native, White, Protestant Supremacy. It's not really hard to see the connective thread. You can't use the language that the Klan uses there very explicitly, which is so obviously white supremacist, because we are a diverse nation now. And again, this is still a minority group, these white, white Christian nationalists. But what they're doing is they're, you know, part of the phrase, they're grooming the audience. They're conditioning the audience. They're working their way in very subtly to say, you know, we're trying to figure out who we are. And for the last hundred years, we've been trying to figure that out. Wouldn't it be great if we could get back to before that, when we knew who we are? 
white Christian nationalists, right? This is this is something that is uh, is concerning. This is something that when you look at the historical record, it's there. It's not new. In the same way that we are seeing economic inequality and income disparities between the upper 1% and the rest of us at incredibly historic proportions in ways that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age, we are seeing a push for a white nationalism, a white Christian nationalism that benefits those very same uh, collections of power that we haven't seen since the same time period. This is history repeating itself. If we don't know our history, history will repeat itself. So anybody out there listening, if you are white like me, if you're privileged like me, if you grew up Christian like me, be very, very, very attentive to the language that you're hearing around you right now. Be very, very careful when you start thinking about supporting these people because they sound like they're giving good ideas about restoring some sense of of Christian morals to the way that we behave as a nation. As a historian, I'm going to tell you right now that that is a mythic past. It never existed. We were built on slavery. We were built on the genocide of the Native Americans. All of this was done under the blessing of a benevolent Christianity that said, it's okay. And let me just point out that the guy interviewing Stephen Wolf about Christian nationalism, this guy, Doug Wilson, he is a, was a fringe, fringy Christian uh, pastor, spokesperson, who was on record as saying that slavery was not unbiblical that the life of the slave was a positive experience, that abolitionists were unbiblical. This is somebody who uh, received uh, support uh, by very prominent Christian voices like John Piper, who said that of Doug Wilson, he gets the gospel right, who had a platform by Christianity Today, one of the flagship publications of Christianity. This is somebody with very problematic views of race, somebody who is very clearly all of a sudden in the spotlight, working with this guy, Stephen Wolf, on a very specific understanding of what this nation should be. And it is not just Christian nationalism. This isn't just about what would Jesus do and wouldn't it be great if everybody in our country lived along those lines. There is a very soft-spoken but persistent thread of white supremacy that comes with this of militancy that comes with this. This is something that we should be careful about, something that we should be very, very aware of. There's a podcast that I might have mentioned in the past. It's called Straight White American Jesus. Um, And for the last, I don't know, six, at least six months, if not a year, um, they've been talking quite a bit about these different expressions of white Christian nationalism. I encourage you to check it out, Straight White American Jesus. It's a good podcast. Um, But I want us just to be aware of that. And so I wanted to use my platform today as a white man of privilege 
to say, hey, I know that it is comfortable when platforms get put out there that would seem to benefit us or maintain benefits that we already have. But these are dangerous. They are a threat to democracy. They are a threat to peace. They are a threat to loving your neighbor as yourself. And we need to be wary of that. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to like the podcast, follow the podcast, download the podcast, but more importantly, wherever you're listening to it, if you could just put a review out, that would be fantastic. Tell your friends, tell your family, spread the word. Wimp Podcast. You can reach me at wimp.podcast at gmail.com. Look for me on Instagram. Thanks again. See you next week. Sleep.